Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. My name's Ian Burbage. Uh, I'm an Associate Director here at the RSA, and uh, with a background in public policy and neighbourhood working and behavioural science, I'm super excited to introduce uh, today's uh, guest speaker and academic star, David uh, Sloan-Wilson. Um, David's most recent book, This View of Life, um, is recently published and talks about the need to, um, to extend the Darwinian revolution um, much more broadly to everything associated with being human, including culture and policy. So that, that had my interest from the start. Um, not only that, it ranges from uh, lifting out the work of Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom through to Robert Putnam. It um, looks at the Toyota production system and talks about uh, psychopathic chickens. So it's, <laughs> it's um, interesting uh, and stimulating, uh, as, as I found it. Um, and I think the other thing that really leapt out to me, for us as practitioners, as people that are trying to make change, uh, whether it's through research and practical application of that research or through the work that I'm sure you are doing, uh, there's some very practical insights that can, can be taken up and played around with, which I know we're going to hear a little bit more about. So this is uh, super exciting. Um, David is an evolutionary biologist with a special interest in human biocultural evolution. Um, a distinguished professor of biology and anthropology at Binghamton University, uh, David is president of the Evolution Institute and author of a number of books, including uh, Darwin's Cathedral, uh, The Neighbourhood Project, and Does Altruism Exist? So really looking forward to hearing your insights, David, into your most recent work. And I'd invite you to join me uh, in welcoming to the RSA, uh, David Sloan-Wilson. Thank you very much. Okay, am I mic'd up? Is it all working back there? Good, thank you so much. Well, it's so nice to be here. I've been involved with the RSA off and on again for a while, and so, so nice to be back. And what a beautiful space. I mean, it's just like a perfect intellectual space. So, uh, uh, lucky you. Uh, so, let me begin by explaining the title. Uh, this view of life, as many of you know, comes from the final passage of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, where he says, there is grandeur in this view of life. And so for me, that represents an evolutionary worldview. And a worldview includes a theory plus more. I like to say that a theory tells you what is, and a worldview tells you how to act. And for many people, uh, evolution is not just a theory, but is something that once you understand it, it informs what we might do, basically in order to make the world a better uh, place. In that sense, it can function in the same capacity as a religion. And that's not such an unusual thing to say because that's how humanism has always been regarded as basically a secular worldview that, um, that uh, functions in the same capacity as a religion. It animates us. And it's interesting to me the word spiritual comes from to breathe, to animate. Uh, and so there is a sense in which we can think about spirituality in a way which is entirely secular. Uh, but completing the Darwinian revolution um, requires quite a bit of uh, um, uh, unpacking. Uh, we might say the Darwinian revolution is always already complete for biology. Uh, that's not to say that there's not more discoveries in store for us, but it is already the case that we think of evolutionary theory as something which makes sense of all aspects of biology. And in fact, it was in the 1970s when I was a graduate student that the geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And uh, really, I was lucky to be a biologist at that time, a graduate student at that time, because that was a time when all the different branches of biology, ecology, behavior, evolution, the mechanistic branches of biology were growing together. They were fusing. And so we could really say that we had a single theory which could act like a toolkit in order to um, understand, ask intelligent questions about all aspects of all species. And it was at that point that we could say that the Darwinian revolution was complete. But for most people, the word biology invokes a different set of associations than the words human 
culture, and policy. And this reflects the fact that the study of evolution in, in relation to human affairs, uh, even though Darwin and many others of his time actually, I mean, right from the beginning thought that evolution had as much to say about humanity as the rest of life. But, but um, um, over the course of the 20th century, it followed a very different path. Uh, and in many ways, an apartheid got set up in which the study of all things human basically was outside the bounds of, uh, of, um, of biology. And so the Darwinian revolution won't be complete until it makes sense of everything associated with the words human, culture, and policy, what we do in the world, in addition to the word biology. And the problem is not just with religious creationists, and it's not just with those people who are threatened by what's often called social Darwinism, the idea whether what evolution tells us is it's all about competition. Um, that's not the real problem. The real problem is with people who actually accept Darwin's theory in their own minds, but actually do not apply it to any aspect of their lives, not their professional lives. If they might be an economist or, or a, a psychologist or no matter what their profession, uh, and nor their personal lives. So for them, the idea that Darwin's theory is correct, of course it is. Uh, the idea that what they think is, is broadly consistent with evolution, uh, they certainly think so, uh, but they don't know. They don't know. And uh, come to find out, you find yawning gaps between what people think uh, um, in their professional and personal lives and actually evolutionary uh, what evolution uh, tells us. Uh, nowhere more so than in economics, than in economics, where the predicates, the axioms of, of orthodox economic theory are just severely at odds with, um, with Darwin's uh, uh, theory. So it's, it's with the broad man, I mean, that's my audience, is not so much the creationists, not so much people that are threatened by, by social uh, Darwinism, it's the broad mass of people that think they accept um, uh, evolutionary theory, but don't know, and uh, come to find out, then we find there's all this work that needs to be, um, all that, this work that needs to be um, uh, done. And so there's two senses in which this is exhilarating for me, and I try to uh, transmit that to my reader. Uh, one is that, of course, uh, uh, we're addressing the big questions. The, the questions can't get any bigger as to the nature of humanity, uh, morality, epistemology, uh, the nature of meaning systems. Uh, I mean, uh, the questions just don't get any bigger or more philosophical. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is the questions don't get more practical. And at the same time that we're asking the big questions, we're actually uh, uh, um, uh, leaving the ivory tower and putting our boots to the ground and actually trying to solve problems large and small, everything from our individual welfare to how we function in small groups, which I'll be dwelling on, all the way up to global uh, uh, governance. So at the same time, evolution is providing this, this big intellectual picture and this practical toolkit. And I love to describe evolutionary theory as a toolkit. Uh, really, we're not much different than plumbers and and carpenters. We need to show up on the job and we need to pull out the right tools to get the job done. These tools are conceptual tools in addition to, in addition to um, uh, physical tools. And so uh, let's get right down to that practical toolkit part, leave the big questions aside for the, uh, uh, for the moment. What does it mean to describe evolution as a practical toolkit? Uh, one person I rely upon heavily is uh, not only uh, Len Ostrom, the Nobel, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, uh, 2009, but Nico Tinbergen, who won the Nobel Prize in 1973 and was a professor at uh, Cambridge University, I believe, for a long time. Uh, he was uh, the person, one of the people who pioneered the study of animal behavior, along with uh, Conrad Lorenz and Carl von Frisch. And uh, back then, in the uh, first half of the 20th century, it was not obvious that uh, a behavior such as aggression uh, could evolve by natural selection in the same way as an anatomical structure such as a deer's antlers. And so the accomplishment of Tinbergen and company was to actually establish that was the case. We could study animal behaviors in the same way that we studied other, um, any other 
a trade. And in the process of doing this, in a famous paper published in 1963, Tinbergen pointed out that any product of evolution has to be addressed with four questions. Four different questions need to be asked about any product of evolution concerning their function. Why does it exist? How does it contribute to survival and reproduction? It's history. Evolution is a historical process. Mutations arise and they spread compared to other uh, traits. It's mechanism. Everything that evolves has a physical basis. And it's development. Everything that evolves actually emerges during the lifetime of the organism. And so function, history, mechanism, development are the four questions. And if you're, if you're employing those four questions, in an integrated fashion, then you are a fully rounded evolutionist. You, belong, you, you, you join the evolution club when you're, when you're asking those four uh, questions, Tinbergen's four questions. So that's interesting, uh, but now we need to add a few more tools in the, in the toolkit. One of those is that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution. And one of the things that happened during the 20th century was that evolution became highly gene-centric. Darwin knew nothing about genes. For him, evolution was about variation, selection, and heredity, a resemblance between offspring and their parents. But once genes were rediscovered in the early 20th century and the science of genetics got going, then it was as if the only mechanism of heredity is that the only way that offspring resemble parents is by sharing their genes. And to this day, when I say evolution, most people, experts and novices alike, hear the word genes. But now we know, and what has really emerged uh, over the last few decades, is that all of the fast-paced changes taking place around us, including cultural changes and our personal changes, us changing as individuals can be seen as evolutionary processes. So all the changes taking place around us and within us can also be studied with the same toolkit that has been developed for the study of genetic evolution. So how important is that? Tinbergen's four questions can be asked for all of these things. And then something else to talk about is multi-level uh, uh, selection. And the best way that I can communicate that is by asking you to imagine playing the game of Monopoly. So I'll bet every one of you has played that game. And the goal of that game, of, of course, is to get all the real estate and drive everyone else playing the game bankrupt. So get yourself in a Monopoly mood. And now imagine playing a Monopoly tournament where there's many games in play and the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops their real estate the fastest. So imagine playing that game, and I think you'll realize that almost every decision you make in a Monopoly tournament will be different than the decisions you make playing the single game of Monopoly. And so the message is, is that this also takes place in evolution. That evolution, in part, is a competition between groups, between individuals within single groups. And what that results in is monopoly-like behaviors, behaviors that are self-serving and, and disruptive for the group as a whole. That's within group selection. But evolution also takes place between groups, and that selects for teamwork. That selects for the behaviors that enable individuals to function as a team, again, compared to other teams. And this is not just a two-tier hierarchy, this is a multi-tier hierarchy. And that dynamic, that conflicting dynamic of within and between group selection, it, it takes place at every rung of that hierarchy. So what's good for me can be bad for my family. What's good for my family can be bad for my tribe. What's good for my tribe can be bad for my nation. What's good for my corporation can be bad for the global uh, economy. So this is something that we really need to know about. It is profoundly against the invisible hand. The invisible hand pretends that the pursuit of lower level interest, individual interest or corporate interest, robustly benefits the common good as if led by an invisible hand. And nothing could be more wrong 
from a multi-level evolutionary perspective. Actually, there is a sense of the invisible hand that is legitimate from that perspective, but maybe we could get to there in the, uh, in the, um, the Q&A. So against all of that, you put all of that together, and now we have a, a toolkit which is very practical indeed for addressing our, um, our um, uh, issues. And one of the things that it tells us is that our species, what makes us so different from all other primate species, is that um, uh, basically the tournament version of Monopoly is, is, is part of our genetic evolution, much more so than the individual game of Monopoly. If you look at other primate species, including our closest relatives, the chimpanzee, what you find is a little bit of cooperation and a lot of conflict within groups. And for that reason, chimps are very smart, but their intelligence is predicated on distrust. Imagine living in a group where you didn't trust anyone, like a poker game or like the game of Monopoly. You didn't trust anyone. And imagine being very intelligent at playing that game. And then imagine that going on for so long, for so many generations, that it just got embedded in your psyche, your psychology. That's the kind of brain you have, the brain that's best for playing the single game of Monopoly. Now imagine a species in which it's the reverse. And the mind you have is the mind that's really good at playing the Monopoly teamwork. That's the human mind. That's the human mind. It's, it's, it's so much adapted to do teamwork that really it's the group, actually the small group, because small groups were the only groups in our evolutionary history until very recently that is the unit, uh, the, is the organism. And so the whole concept of society, a society is an organism which has a long history in political thought, all the way to Aristotle's politics and Hobbes' Leviathan, the idea that we can think of a human society as like an organism. So venerable metaphor as a metaphor, but now actually we actually know scientifically that everything we call an organism, such as a multicellular organism or a single cell or a single bacteria, is in fact a highly cooperative social group of lower level units. And knowing that, when a society becomes that cooperative, such as the social insect, the ants, the bees, the termites, when they become that cooperative, they deserve to be called superorganisms. That is the legitimate term for them. And if a primate evolved to be that cooperative, they too would deserve to be called a superorganism. And so we could actually think of a group as a human group as lichenor. What does that mean? And so let me tell you one of the, my favorite stories from my book, and uh, keep me on time here because I know we need to do um, um, uh, eager, eager for your, uh, uh, your questions. But uh, one of my uh, favorite stories from my book involves a clinical uh, neuroscientist named Jim Cohen at the University of Virginia. And uh, so he was studying, a, he was working with an old World War II veteran who had uh, begun to experience post-traumatic stress syndrome late in life. And, uh, and the old man wasn't, wasn't helping out at all. He was totally resistant to anything that Jim asked him to do. And eventually the old man said, I want my wife to come with me. And Jim had never had this request before. But he said, okay, and his wife came, and at first he treated her like a bystander, and the old gent was not any more receptive than before. And then his wife said, let me hold his hand. So she held his hand, and he became receptive to therapy, very receptive to therapy. Well, Jim was amazed. He said, what happened to his brain just by holding hands? And so he embarked upon a set of experiments which are ongoing and which he'd take regular people, he'd put them in an fMRI machine so he could see what's going on inside their brain, strap some electrodes to their ankle and threaten them with electric shock. So it was really scary to be, to be in there and then to see what their brain was doing under three conditions. Alone, holding the hand of a stranger and holding the hands of a friend. And holding the hand of a friend had this tremendous calming effect. He was able to duplicate the holding hands with this 
experiment. And this led him to formulate something he called social baseline theory. And what that says is that, that basically the one constant of human evolution, about all the diversity, all the ecological niches we inhabit, all of the climatic zones we inhabit, there's one constant in our evolution. We were always embedded in highly cooperative groups. And what that means is, is that our brains evolved. So when it makes, the brain makes its trade-off decisions about how to allocate its resources, our brains do not distinguish between our personal resources and our social resources. It integrates them seamlessly beneath our consciousness. And a wonderful set of experiments by Jim's colleague, Dennis Prophet, illustrates how this works. So imagine that I take you to the base of a hill, a, a long hill. And I ask you to estimate its slope. So you do. And I ask you to do this under a number of conditions, uh, with and without carrying a heavy backpack, uh, but fasting or not having fasted, uh, having had a workout or not. And in each of these cases, I am depleting your personal resources. Okay? And so now, obviously, if I deplete your personal resources, you will be less inclined to climb the hill. But it's a funny aspect of our minds is that the way that happens is we actually perceive the hill as more steep. We estimate it as more steep. And so this is a good example of the brain making its trade-off decisions based on its personal resources. So now we add a fourth condition, alone or, st or standing next to a friend. And when you put a friend next to you, it's just like, that hill isn't steep at all. Let's climb that <laughs> hill. And so what the brain has done is it has seamlessly integrated its personal resources and its social resources. And so against that background, that if you think of isolation, and I know that isolation is one of the big factors that the RSA is considering, is one of the great problems of modern times. You even have a minister of loneliness, don't you? <laughs> right? Okay, so now against that background, and look how different this is than the idea of homo economicus, the idea that we could understand everything in terms of the rational individual, basically, who's making decisions in terms of its own uh, uh, self-interest. What it means is, is that if you remove an individual and that individual is not embedded in any kind of cooperative group, that's going to be like, that's going to be like, uh, you know, being in that fMRI machine and not holding anyone's uh, uh, hand. And so the best thing you could do, if there was one single policy prescription, it would be to organize modern life in, 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 in small groups. The small group is the cell of a multicellular society. That's the single best prescription that, uh, that we could have and has many, many um, um, applications. Uh, so actually, uh, I guess the final point that I'll make is that uh, you could turn this into a very practical change method, a coaching method, you might say, for working with groups. And that's one of the things we've done. We call it pro-social. And I've already mentioned like the idea of, of large-scale society needing to be multicellular. So the cell is the, is the small group. The, the, the multicellular aspect is basically collections of small groups appropriately coordinated with each other. And so very much what I'm doing through the Evolution Institute, and as described in the pages of my, of my book, is to work in various contexts and locations. This turns out to be portable across cultures. We're working in Africa and low and middle income countries in addition to, in addition to uh, high income uh, countries in any context, any context, because it's all a matter of cooperation at various scales and a capacity to change. And so I think that uh, with that, I think we'll open it up to uh, Q&A. But uh, that, that combination of asking the big questions and actually boots on the ground uh, working in real-world situations, evolution, basically cultural evolution in real-world settings, is something that I think is, is uh, what I'm all about. And from what I know about the RSA, it's what the RSA is all about. So thank you very much.
Thank you, David. Very uh, thought-provoking and stimulating to get started on a, on a Thursday. Um, I, just, I just want to pick up on, on a couple of points, first from the book and then from, from what you um, just shared with us before we, we open up for questions. Um, I was really taken by um, the practicality of a lot of what you talk about in the book. Um, and you talk about how there are two approaches to creating change. Um, that fail. So on the one hand, you talk about laissez-faire, and you touched on that a little bit, the idea that if we just leave things alone, people will step forward and fix stuff. Um, the other extreme, we have you know, the idea of top-down, command and control, um, make stuff happen type approach. Uh, and, and I think what, what I took from, one of the key things I took from the book was this idea that there are sort of mechanisms of cultural evolution that sit somewhere in the middle that are that practical way of doing things. Um, and, and that really speaks, I think, to a lot of what we're trying to do here at the RSA. And we talk about, uh, you know, systems entrepreneur, how we might understand complexity and then try and spot opportunities for change. So I wonder if, if we could just unpack that a little bit, because you talk about a process um, around starting with a target or an ambition or a mission, perhaps, to, to invoke maybe Mariana Mazzucato's language around yeah. missions, um, and then thinking about proceeding with sort of planned and unplanned variations. Yeah. So it'd be really interesting just to hear a practical example of how that plays out. Yeah, this is so exciting. And just to, just to recap this very quickly, so there's two things that don't work. One is laissez-faire, as we've discussed. The other is centralized planning. Why doesn't that work? It's because the world is too complex. So there's no group of experts that know what to do and how to um, implement it. And uh, those, of course, are the two main policy narratives, laissez-faire and centralized planning. So if those don't work, what can? Uh, what can is a, a managed evolutionary process of cultural evolution. And all three ingredients of the cultural evolutionary process need to be systemic, so complexity comes in here along with um, evolution. It's whole systems that we're trying to improve, and the only way to do that is to make the whole system the target of, of selection. In entrepreneurship, for example, we might have the target of, of course, we want to improve you know, whole cities. The smart city movement is a good example, where this, the city is the target of selection. Um, um, then variation has to be oriented around the target. Not just any variation will do. It has to be variation relevant to the target of selection. So that requires management. And then when you find a best practice, not so easy because if you have a best practice or if you have a practice you're trying to evaluate it, you have to evaluate its whole system-wide effects, including the indirect effects in addition to the, the direct effects. But nevertheless, when you find the best practice, then you have to implement it and you have to replicate it. That's not easy because it's often very sensitive to context. So it can't be replicated in a cookie cutter fashion. And so what it means is there's kind of good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is that what I just described is pretty complicated. The good news is, is that it's, it's a plan C. It's like the third way that actually not only can work, and this to me is, is in some ways the most exciting part, it's the only thing that ever has worked. And so that when we look back in history, or if we look today at current change methods, what we will find is whenever positive social change took place, it was because there was a systemic target of selection, there was an experimental approach, and there was attention paid to the replication of best practices. And so now I'm working with really great scholars, including Jeff Hodgson, who's a great historian of the social sciences here, and I had dinner with him last uh, uh, night, the pragmatist movement in, in America, so, so interesting, uh, leading to globalist policies of uh, Woodrow Wilson, um, uh, social reformers such as John Dewey and, and uh, William James. You know, they all, in one way or another, they didn't necessarily use the E word, but they, they had these ingredients. And then we have current practices like Toyota um, and other cases where, um, often by happenstance, uh, uh, people have, uh, you might say, stumbled upon the third way. And, uh, and, uh, and so we should be able to recognize that and we should be able to improve upon it. Completely. And it's, it's kind of always a, a shock or a surprise to me that the idea of we learn when things don't quite work out, we learn by trying and, and, and then picking out what does work and moving forwards without necessarily having a grand plan. The idea that that's not the way of doing things is always odd. Yeah, maybe. I mean, let me give a concrete example. I think mm -hmm. it's worth it. It'll take just a few minutes. Are we okay? How are we doing on? 
on time. So it turns out there's many business methods that have kind of converged upon this. And one of my favorites described in my book, Toyota is a very famous example, but this other example is, is much less famous. It's called Rapid Results, and it was uh, uh, invented by a business consultant who was consulting with an oil refinery at a time when it went on a wildcat strike. And for a period of four months, about 300 middle managers had to manage this whole plant that typically was managed by 3,000 people. And not only did they do it, but they regarded it as some kind of peak experience. A peak experience. And you know that you know, the more difficult it gets, then the more a peak experience it becomes from a psychological perspective. That's why soldiers typically regard their war experience as the best time of their life because, because of that experience of being in life and death situations and operating in a, in, a, in a tight group. And so this business consultant thinks, how can I bottle this? How can I make this happen on an average day? And so he invented this idea of rapid results where a company would pick some task, which is super challenging, like doubling the sales for a product line or, or improving customer service or something like that, and creating small teams and empowering, uh, composing the teams the right way so, well, so that it, uh, everyone closest to the problem and all that, cutting the red tape, giving them flexibility, and then letting these teams go to work. And do you know they had that peak experience? So now they were employing small groups, teams. I think you can see how we're, how we're. And not only was this like working well at the team level, but it also became the best way for the whole corporation to evolve. Because unlike the grand plan, which is often the way you, know, you bring in the consultants for the new grand plan, typically it doesn't work. Now you were doing things in an incremental fashion. And then this little bit was, was working. You could incorporate it in, so on and so forth. So this method called the rapid results method is one of the um, stumblings upon the third way. And you know, there's many of these, many of these. Uh, as we might expect from cultural evolution. Absolutely. Um, I'm aware of time, so I'm going to open this out to questions right at the start. Um, let's, uh, let's take a, a couple from this side to start with. All that. Um, my question is, you talked about the physical hand-holding. Um, what's your views on what I would call virtual hand-holding and that as an enabler to accelerate these peak experiences. So just to, just to paint the picture a bit more, uh, the technology that exists today allows you to identify, if you like, similar societies, people who are facing the same challenge or peak goal that you are, quicker and easier than ever, and therefore form virtual societies to challenge from. Are we not living in a potentially a, a golden age that could explode, but virtual versus real hand-holding is my question. Yeah, that's a great question. and. Uh I mean, the one interesting part of this, getting back to real groups or physical groups, is the importance of touching per se. Uh, and it's just, it's just an empirical question. It's just an empirical question. Um, but I think it's a good bet, and there is a little bit of research on it, is that touching per se is important because our bodies, again, a lot of this operates uh, beneath conscious awareness. And if you look at most traditional groups, they're touching each other all the time in a non-sexual context. They're draping themselves over each other. So if that's the case, then basically the body might, the way the body, just the same way that the, you know, the, <laughs> our inclination to climb the hill is, is, is registered as, as seeing the slope in a different way. It might be that touching was such a constant in small cooperative groups. that If you're in a group that's cooperative but nobody's touching, then you might be severing Something and it's against that background that no touch rules, for example, is like seems like a good idea because it solves one problem, but might not be such a good idea. And you know, there's so many of these that we're doing things. Everything, most everything we do, has a rationale. It makes sense against the background of some set of beliefs. But very often, it causes us to do the wrong things. Now, when you get to virtual groups then I think there's you know, tremendous good news and tremendous bad news, as we know. So if you, if you look on internet interactions, we have the best and the worst. We have systems in which cooperation can take place among total strangers. You can climb into somebody's car. You can sleep in their apartment safely. 
And that's because reputational systems have been built in and so on. And then, of course, we have the, the worse. And so I think the need for this theory, just to put it short and sweet, the need for this view of life, the need for this toolkit in order to structure our online and internet interactions was never more important, never more important. We do have, we do have good examples to choose from. Standing variation in addition to what we could invent theoretically. Great, let's take a couple more questions. We'll have one here and there's one right at the back. Um, David, I, I want to test your toolkit. <laughs> I want to do it this way. If you look forward, and most of us believe this, in 30 years' time, we've added three and a half billion people. We certainly have very serious problems now with the climate. And the one that we're not talking about, which is going to happen, is we're going to run out of resources, very key resources. Now, I'm interested. What if I apply not a Margaret Mead idea, 10 good men will get together and form a G10 and solve the problem. That's one idea. I'm wondering what Darwin actually, this Darwinian approach has to say about that. Because in my simplistic mind, it says, actually, humankind is going to go through a tough period. People are going to get meaner. They're not going to cooperate. So that's a sort of statement, but it's also a sort of question and a challenge. What do you think your, your type of philosophy, your type of approach adds to that debate? So I'm, I'm, thank you for that. I'm optimistic, but I'm not naive. And so obviously, and a point that I, I make, I'll make it here, it might already be implicit, is that evolution is the problem in addition to the solution. And that evolution doesn't make everything nice. Nature is not a moral place. There's many animal societies we'd never want to live in. They'd be like the worst despotic societies in human Ecosystems are not friendly uh, places. And so left unmanaged evolution, including cultural evolution, and our personal evolution, takes us where we don't want to go. And we're behaving in ways that are adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word, but are pathological in terms of our, our norms. And so what that means is that unless we manage the process of cultural evolution, then these horrible outcomes will take place. We can say that with a high degree of confidence. But when it comes to managing the uh, cultural evolutionary process, we can make another very important conclusion, which is, given what I said about this logic of multi-level selection, that whenever any entity becomes adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word, it becomes internally cooperative, but becomes part of the problem higher up the scale. And the only solution to that problem is to formulate our policies with the global good in mind. And so multi-level selection leads inexorably to a whole earth ethic. Now, many people here already have a whole earth ethic. That's not unusual. But now we have, I think, a scientific justification for a whole earth ethic. What that means is, is that when we plan policy when we basically we think about what we should be doing. We need to have the whole earth in mind. All of those lower units, the nations, the corporations, everything lower all the way down to the families and, 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 and so on, they don't go away, but they have to be coordinated so that they become part of the solution, uh, not part of the problem. And this can be done in a bottom-up fashion, by the way. That's really important. And again, time, our time is brief, but, but, but th this can happen in, in, a, in a way that's bottom-up, that everyone here, whatever their capacities, can get involved in a bottom-up fashion. And then the bottom-up can meet the right kind of top-down as opposed to the wrong kind of top-down. So the optimism is, actually, we do have uh, a kind of a blueprint. Um, but, of course, the problems are so huge. So. So I've got a question at the back, and I've got one over here. Uh, th thank you very much uh, for that. I'm not so worried about the total human population. Uh, the United Nations produces estimates every two years, and nobody seems to have noticed, but on Monday they downgraded the estimate for 2100 from 11.2 billion down to 10.9. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it's just possible that the... the population problem is, is yeah. somehow 
not oh. not as not as bad as oh, we yeah, thought. Yeah, Ch children children are going to be for the first time ever. We're going to hit peak population for a species. What worries me is variation between individuals, and whether although most of us are cooperative, and I, and I agree with that, whether a few people aren't. We're currently going through a selection process in this country for a leader of the Conservative Party. Um, and I do wonder whether a few people are more individualistic, narcissistic, don't think about others so much, and have a tendency to think that the little people really have to be managed, uh, whereas most people may be cooperative, but will that help us if a few people, particularly those who are very narcissistic, end up managing to be at the top? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I want to... I want to abstract that problem uh, uh, in a really interesting way. And I think it's so much insight is, is obtained from taking kind of big problems and shrinking them down and asking the question, how would these problems look if it was individuals in a small group? And so imagine a small group with individuals and some are cooperators and others not so much. Okay, and there's your problem shrunk down. Is there some sense in which the cooperators can can win the Darwinian contest at that scale? And the answer is yes. How? Well, in the first place, by clustering. If there's enough cooperators and they can find their interactions with each other, then you've got the, basically the group, uh, basically you, you've got a little bit of you know, population structure within that, within that group. There's also norms, sanctions, punishments, all of these things that evolutionary game theory tells us can cause cooperation to win uh, the, um, now, now let's go back up. And when you truly reject the concept of the invisible hand, um, and then you ask, what's left? What's left are Leviathan organizations, corporations, and basically groups that are trying to function as, as internally as cooperative units, now either being cooperators or not, with your at this larger scale. And what that means is, is that if there's a critical mass of corporations that are actually solid citizen corporations, or entities that are solid citizen entities, although not others, that's no different than those individuals in the smaller groups. And so you see uh, all these corporate social responsibility movements, the B Corps, um, Unilever is one. My friend Rory Sutherland talks about this. Um, uh, a lot that you could actually get a movement taking place without changing a single law, although of course you want to do that too. Uh, and of course a law that mandates that a corporation must maximize short-term profits for its shareholders is a huge problem. That's institutionalizing the, the, wrong, the wrong things. But in any case, I think there's a sense in which you don't have to have uh, you know, complete. Co you don't have to start out with complete cooperation. You can get there from starting conditions, which are more or less we have now. So I want to note that the sex ratio of the question answers has been one to zero. <laughs> so we need to hear from some women. I know that we some of them are raising their their hands just to, just to be politically correct. Sure. Just one more male question for the time being. Sorry. <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, a different topic, which is the, what's the view, how can you answer the views of some of your evolutionary professor colleagues who seem to be very skeptical that evolution can be applied at the group level? And I've looked at the arguments before and for and against multi-level selection, and your arguments seem pretty cogent. But the fact is that many famous evolutionary theories say that you are talking about something that's impossible. Evolution can only apply at the genetics level. So what's motivating these people? Is it that they're just uh, under the hood libertarian laissez-faire people, or is there more to it? Well, you wouldn't be referring to Richard Dawkins, would you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, much to say here, and, uh, but uh, let me give two quick answers, I think. One is a broad social answer. It is fascinating to me that uh, what are we doing on time? Oh, great. Okay, so I can stretch this out just a little bit. If you go back to Darwin's day, what we find is, is that, of course, you know, he was so 
you know, uh, insightful and all that. But he was also a product of Victorian culture. And there were some things he thought that were just a, a product of his times. He couldn't see through them. Nobody else could. Uh, he couldn't help but think of European culture as superior. Uh, it, would, it, was, it went without saying for him that men were superior to women. Time was required in order for us to be, basically to winnow out the elements of Victorian culture from, what, from the theory, what the theory really implies. Okay, so what's our version of that? What's our version of that? What's the proverbial water that the fish can't see for us? And I nominate individualism. This idea that everything is not understood until it's understood in terms of individual actions and motives. And when you look at that, the, basically the social history of that, I'm taking over roughly in the middle of the 20th century. What you find is, is that it took over in general, but also in all of these different scientific disciplines. And so economics becomes homo economicus. The social sciences becomes methodological individualism. Margaret Thatcher says there's no such thing as society, only individuals and their families. And evolution becomes highly individual and gene-centric. So it's almost as if what was taking place in science was like the tail being wagged by some big cultural dog that we never saw. And I was there as a graduate student back then. And I recall everyone exulting about how how general everything was becoming. Isn't it awesome that our evolutionary models are becoming like our economic models, they would say. You get John Maynard Smith coming up with evolutionary game theory, George Williams coming up with the theory of individual selection, Richard Dawkins with the selfish. Isn't it awesome that we could understand the length and breadth of evolution in this kind of individualistic, reductionistic fashion? They weren't becoming general. They were becoming mutually provincial. Provincial. And so I think that is the broad social explanation for why evolution, along with everything else, became highly individualistic uh, at the time. And then some people are able to gravitate away more than others. You've all heard the saying, science progresses funeral by funeral, which is not always true, but sometimes it is. <laughs> and so I wish the best for Richard Dawkins. <laughs> but he might be a case of science progressing funeral by funeral. I hope he has a long life. <laughs> so now, but one other thing, one other thing needs to be said, which is at the end of the day, in order for these theories, these individualistic theories, to actually say anything uh, meaningful at all, they have to give back what they took away. And so you take selfish gene theory, basically. It seems to take away group selection. And that gives back vehicles of selection. And if you look at all the theories of social evolution, no matter what their names, kin selection, inclusive fitness, gay evolutionary game theory, selfish gene theory, what you see is that they give back what they take away uh, in the form of groups that you, know, that you can't get away from positing groups. Why is that? It's because if we're talking about the evolution of social behaviors, you cannot even assign a fitness value to an individual without knowing not only its phenotype, to use a bit of jargon, but the phenotypes of the others with whom it interacts, with whom it interacts, and that's its group. And so all of these different theories that emerged and that seem different from each other, it actually turns out to be a case of you say tomato and I say tomato. They all share something in common. And I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm, I'm having a conversation now with Jonathan Birch, who's at the London School of Economics. We'll be meeting tomorrow. And he's one of the better people in terms of, in terms of recognizing this concept. It's called equivalence. That, uh, that basically what seemed to be different theories, such as one could be right and the other could be wrong, actually turned out to be you know, the proverbial people in the dark room groping the elephant. So, so um, um, that's a long-winded answer to you. <laughs> to you. Your question. question. Yes. Here at the front. Even out the sex ratio here. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, just one comment and then my question. Um, I don't think corporations are mandated by law to look at short-term shareholder returns. They don't have to pay dividends. It's up to the management of a company. Um, 
how does your, within your book, your theories, um, one of the things that I find very troubling in contemporary life, whether it's the way foundations are run, the United Nations working groups that have to sit in expensive cities instead of being in some hellhole in Albania without a hairdryer and a five-star restaurant, um, how would you suggest that there could be accountability that people are fired when they do something that is really inept, corrupt, venal, um, <laughs> whether it's a computer system that doesn't work for a major health service, whether it's uh, the media that isn't responsible, and I'll go on all segments of the media. Um, where do you put accountability um, that people should be, um, I guess, judged and rated and lose their jobs? When you say judge graded and lose their jobs, I think that's a, um, I mean, it sounds draconian. Uh, I think it's realistic. Well, I mean, we need change, we need accountability. But very often what you find is, and this is where I think it's important to become more systemic, because I think implicit in the way that you were framing it, if you don't mind me saying so, is that you know, if something's going wrong as individuals, we have to yank and rank and, and so on, when in fact this, it might be more systemic. And that when we see these pathologies, what we're finding is that there were incentives that caused good people to basically do these things. And I think you could pick any number. And others to turn a blind eye. And others to turn a blind eye and all that. So, uh, and the nonprofit world, I think, is famous for this, where the nonprofits basically end up just perpetuating themselves and don't really address the problem. Uh, I'll nominate universities. Because I said that I've lived with it. And they're just, just, just I mean, so bad. So what's the answer? What well, answer is back to the idea that we have to be systemic, that if we want things to work well at this scale, then we have to uh, measure, basically, uh, measure and judge any lower level unit in terms of its contribution. And we need to, and we need to um, have the means to do that, which is not easy because we're, we're evaluating things systemically. No, it's not at the so, top. It's a, it's a high-level unit. I talked about it as a multi-level hierarchy, but the top is the earth. And Wells Fargo is he, here someplace. So, um, and, and so um, I think that there is two things have to take place. Obviously, change has to take place. The better has to replace the worse. And that has to happen faster than ever before. And yet, at the same time, this has to happen in a way which is, um, uh, I want to say, inclusive. And so I can imagine uh, working just to pick a context with, uh, with nonprofits. And to actually, and, and this is what we're doing with, with ProSocial, our practical framework. It includes, it includes this kind of piece where, we're, where we have to formulate our, our true goals. And then we have to look at what we're doing as not getting there. And then we have to work around those obstacles in order to head where we want to go. This is actually at the heart of various therapeutic methods, including mindfulness-based methods, which work well at the individual level and actually can be applied to these, to these higher levels. And there's a whole piece in my book, and happy to talk about it, about um, you know, behavioral cognitive mindfulness-based therapy. You've heard about that? And this is the most evidence-based methods around. And how they work, basically, can be thought of as a form of managed evolution, managing the personal evolutionary process. And then it could be expanded to, to some of these higher levels. So once again, um, I have this kind of optimism, which at the same time, I don't mean to say that anything is going to be, anything is going to be uh, simple. But when you get these organizations that are, that are deeply part of the problem, I think the idea that we can somehow find individuals to remove and replace with other individuals, no. That will not solve the problem, I feel. I feel that uh, you need to have this more systemic approach, if I, if I understand your question correctly. And I think, I think, can, I, I think I'm aware of, of time. Uh, I just want to make a reflection on that, because I think one of the things that really shone out for me in the book, uh, in your description of Eleanor Ostrom's um, design principles around effective groups, um, 
which which actually was was a uh, uh, you know a response to the to the issue of the tragedy of the commons. But in in your work, I, I like the fact that it's applied to effective working of you know community groups, uh, businesses, how we can build those those well functioning cells, as I think you called them, um, that build out in, into a multicellular society. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about what it what it is to do good work to work in in organisations or in schools different contexts that are, that are functioning well and are places people want to be. And I think that speaks then really quite clearly to a lot of the work we're doing behind the scenes, looking at um, you know, young people that are on the fringes of education. And, and that I think there's a, an example in your book about that, uh, the work of Matthew Taylor and good work, these kind of things, I think yeah. is just really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got one more question uh, and then... I'll tell you what, if these are quick, I'll take two here so that we get a, a, a gender balance and then uh, we'll, we'll wrap up. My follow-up question, oh, follow question is, how do you use your insights to, to hardwire and systematise in our modern constitutions, specifically corporations, uh, uh, the, your insights of contestability? How would you design corporate constitutions so you systematise that the the stakeholders can benefit as well as the shareholders. And that's well, a question that's being asked at Oxford at the moment about reforming corporations. Yeah, I mean, there's a question as to whether existing laws are actually binding companies to maximize short-term profits for their shareholders. That's basically what the narrative is telling us. I mean, it's not true. It's not true. And, and it's not true, we hear. Uh, uh, in America, there is a, someone a sadly deceased named Lynn Stout. Okay, great. Oh, good. Yes, and so and so, but of course we could become even more so. And so when we have benefit corporations, um, and the kind of, um, I mean, there's so much to say. But um, uh, there's a British report that I cited a while back, which was on cooperatives, um, and uh, and what it showed was, in the first place, cooperatives do very well, very well. Do you know, especially during hard economic times. But one reason that one reason that they're not more common. Yeah, okay. is, that, is, that, is that basically they get so little support, and basically they're, they're existing in a climate that's stacked against them. How well, and even then they do well. But, but, uh, but how much better would they do in a climate that was stacked in their, in their favor? So. so we're virtually out of time. Can I just take your question really quickly if yeah, it's a short it's one? It's a really quick question, don't worry. Uh, I'd like <laughs> to take a step back from this subject and go back to the research. Um, you gave an example of being with a friend and a rapid results method. Have you ever, is there any uh, research done in terms of when you put it uh, like us against them? So you uh, usually cohesion increases when you put a group and you set it off against another group. Does it work as well in... Uh, when you add this element to, for example, a rapid results uh, method? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, us versus them is huge, but it is actually not the case that, uh, that uh, when we become strong as groups, then we, we need an enemy. I mean, enemies are huge motivators, make no mistake. And warfare is just goes back, all the way back in, in human history. My colleague Peter Turchin has a book titled Ultra Society, How 10,000 Years of War made humans the greatest cooperators on earth. And so, and so between group conflict is huge, make no mistake. And yet there's also research that shows that you can have a very strong group identity without needing an enemy. Uh, and natural disasters brings that out. You know, the hurricane comes and then, and then everyone springs into action because, because it's a life and death situation for that reason. Or the rapid results team is they have this daunting thing that they do, that's all you need. Uh, that's all you uh, um, uh, need. So um, I think that uh, um, with that in mind, and, and also, I mean, what counts as a group? Who's us and who's them is tremendously. That's more the, the cohesion. I, I have a colleague named Rob Kurzban who did the most wonderful study in which he basically, he took the black-white divide and he made it go away in four minutes. And how did he do it? He created a sports scenario, and he gave people jerseys. So now they were red and blue and black and white. <laughs> and and in a, just priming the sports context, and then you saw the red and blue jerseys. You didn't see the black and white. And so you could take diverse people, and this also includes diverse religions, 
And you can, I mean, it takes work, but you can actually create, so we're so good at that. All our groups are social constructions, all of them. And so, once again, it's, it's, it's good to know that, that uh, although work is required, uh, you can actually take people that do not regard themselves as part of a group, and you can construct that. We call it niche construction in the evolution biz. <laughs> <laughs> so there is, there is, we're over time, so uh, apologies for that. There is so much more we could get into. We could talk all afternoon. I haven't even got into the questions I wanted to ask. Um, you will have to read the book to find out about the psychopathic chickens um, and to tease out Eleanor Ostrom's insights, which I think for an organisation like the RSA with 30,000 fellows globally, in effect, a multicellular organization with networks and meetings and so on and so forth. Um, that's just really, really insightful. So um, David is going to be outside signing copies of his book for those of you that wish to um, continue the conversation uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, Rothmill's Coffee House is open downstairs for those of you that haven't found it before if you want to go grab uh, a drink. Um, and uh, the RSA website contains more information about upcoming events and uh, other opportunities to get involved. So with that, I have to stop talking. Um, please join me in uh, thanking David for his time and contribution today. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.